The year is 2009. After being plunged into the Great Recession of 2008, unemployment begins to shrink, showing a possible light at the end of the tunnel. Speaking of plunging, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 splashes safely into the Hudson River, thanks in large part to hero pilot Sully Sullenberger. The app Grinder becomes one of the first and most successful dating apps in history, revolutionizing the LGBTQ dating scene forever, while TikTok, the song Not the App by Kesha, becomes one of the biggest hits of the year. Modern Family debuts on TV, while the city of Pittsburgh enjoys the Super Bowl and Stanley Cup victories from the Steelers and the Penguins. Jacob and Isabella were the top baby names, Adblock is released to destroy pop-ups and my website's ad revenue forever, and Karen's everywhere rejoice, as the asymmetrical bob becomes the hottest hairstyle of the year. We're still waiting for Kanye to let Taylor Swift finish at the VMAs, a move that got Yeezy called a jackass by the newly inaugurated 44th President of the United States, Barack Obama. And to top it all off, some statues were handed out at the 82nd Academy Awards, and that is where our story goes to next. Welcome to Reelin' in the Years, the film podcast that aims to dust off the gems and kick out the trash to find the snubs and flubs from Oscar night's past. My name is Matt, I'll be your podcast host, so let's hit that rewind button all the way back to 2009 and start the show. Welcome to 2009, everyone. It was a crazy year full of many important events in history, politics, and pop culture, with many still trying to recover from one of the worst economic setbacks since the Great Depression. Thank goodness we never have to go through one of those again. As expected, many turned to entertainment to get their minds off the multiple troubles in the world, and it's through that lens that many watched the 82nd Academy Awards hosted on March 7th, 2010. Here at Reelin' in the Years, we aim to take a critical look at Oscar's past to reconsider those choices and to maybe, just maybe, give out some awards that are more fitting in retrospect. But before we do that, let's take a quick look back at last week's episode, where we looked at an Oscar night 10 years before this one in 1999. Very quickly want to give a special shout out to all the people who tuned in last week and for all the kind words of support and the feedback that it got. Uh, I also want to thank everybody for the helpful hints and suggestions that they passed on my way. Last week was definitely a learning curve with a lot of glitches to get over and I know that it was probably a little bit longer than most people were looking for. So we'll try and keep it a little bit shorter today. Uh, But first we should do a quick recap in case you didn't get to catch last week's episode. 1999 was one of the greatest movie years in history, and had more than its fair share of contenders. In 1999, American Beauty ran away with most of the awards, including winning for Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, and Actor, falling just a Hillary Swank short for Best Actress in becoming the fourth film to claim the Big Five Oscars sweep. 
but time, unfortunately, has not been super kind to American Beauty, and while it isn't by far the worst film to win Best Picture, here at Reelin' in the Years we saw some more deserving faces. The big changes from last episode saw Tom Cruise win Best Supporting Actor in Magnolia over Michael Caine. We saw Chloe Sevigny win Best Supporting Actress over Angelina Jolie for her work in Boys Don't Cry. And speaking of Boys Don't Cry, we kept the 1999 decision for Hilary Swank to win that award, a much-deserved trophy for her. And while we kept Best Actress the same, we really did change the Best Actor category, seeing multiple new nominees, but the winner for that was Jim Carrey for his performance in Man on the Moon. But the big winners from that night have to go to the best directors, which changed from Sam Mendes to the Wachowskis for their work in The Matrix, which also happened to win our Reelin' in the Years Award for the new best picture for changing blockbuster cinema forever. So with that recap out of the way, we gotta ask the question, will 2009 see as many changes as 99 did? Are we going to see some similar themes 10 years later? Well, as always, it's important to first get some context, so let's start with Oscar night itself. Live from the Kodak Theater at Hollywood and Highland, it's the 82nd Annual Academy Awards. On the 82nd Academy Awards night, we have two hosts introduced for the first time since 1987. Making his third appearance as Oscars host is Steve Martin, joined by freshman host Alec Baldwin. Now, adding an extra host was not the only change made that year. In fact, there was a much bigger change on the horizon. For the first time since World War II, the Academy would allow up to 10 nominations for Best Picture, potentially doubling the previous amount of five. Now this was welcome news, as the previous year had seen a massive backlash against the five films nominated, as popular films like Wally, Tropic Thunder, and The Dark Knight all failed to get into the Best Picture race despite being nominated for and winning many other awards. Now. This attempt to make the Academy Awards more popular actually genuinely worked. It not only made the Oscar night more relevant, it also gave additional publicity to more movies, which is the main goal of the Oscars in the first place. This is one of the rare moves that we're going to see in this podcast, where a decision made by the Academy is met with universal critical acclaim. Unfortunately, hosts Martin Baldwin were not. Like the last station, Christopher Plummer nominated for Best Supporting Act. Wow. Alec, what's that movie about? It's about Leo Tolstoy and his wife, Sophia. Oh, Alec, you should have said spoiler alert. <laughs> and I know you loved Invictus. I did. Because it combines two of your favorite passions, rugby and tensions between blacks and whites. <laughs> oh, look, there's Vera Farmiga, the co-star of Up in the Air. Did I pronounce that right? Up in the air. <laughs> Ugh, oh boy. Anyway, Roger Ebert called the pair surprisingly unfunny, while Time magazine accused the ceremony of having a choppy pace, which was a classic 
Oscar failing. Now, this is hurtful to say because Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin, two of the funniest guys in the business, uh, but looking back at it, I can absolutely see what they're saying. While some outlets like the Boston Globe said that Baldwin and Martin were one of those old-school comedy teams, if anything, the reaction was middle-of-the-road at best. Rewatching the ceremony today, Martin and Baldwin definitely spend way too long lightly roasting multiple people, and there's like no transitions between them at all. Meryl Streep gets picked on three separate times, which honestly is probably just to plug their new movie, It's Complicated, which was still in the theaters at the time. There's this weird unexplained joke uh, between George Clooney where Alec Baldwin and George Clooney don't like each other. Uh, Clooney plays along, although in reality, there's really nothing to play along with. If the night worked in one particular spot, it was the aforementioned expansion of the best picture list. This definitely worked as there was a 13% growth in viewership turned into the ceremony with an estimated amount of viewers hovering around 80 million total, making it one of the more successful Oscar nights in recent history. Absolutely, the credit was squarely put on the new Best Picture format, but also the fact that the Oscars had gone back to nominating movies that actually performed well at the box office. In fact, five of the nominees had grossed over $100 million before the nominations were even announced. You see, it turns out that people are more willing to tune in to a ceremony when they actually know some of the films that are competing for the awards. This is a lesson that the Oscars will have to learn. Time and time again. With the introduction of the ceremony out of the way, it's time to turn to who was competing. But first, we need to know, who could have been a contender? You don't understand, I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. In this section, we show a little bit of love to some of the movies who didn't get that much love on Oscar night and also won't receive uh, too much extra recognition in this Oscar redo either but it's still important to kind of uh, identify some of the big movies of that year what was going on and what people were watching in the cinemas so what I've done here is I've gone through some of the um, the higher grossing films that didn't make too much of a dent at Oscar night uh, so let's show them a little bit of appreciation now <laughs> If there is one solid theme from 2009 that really pops off the box office receipts page, it is that finally we see that sequels and franchises have completely taken over the box office. If you were going to the movie theaters in 2009, here were some of the ones that you probably went to see. We have the sixth edition of Harry Potter, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. We have Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs. We have Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen. We have Twilight, New Moon. Remember how I said at the beginning, uh, the two most popular baby names were Jacob and Isabella, so we see some Twilight effect happening there. Uh, we have Sherlock Holmes, which isn't a franchise yet, but will turn into one. Uh, we have Fast and Furious, which is the fourth edition of the Fast and Furious franchise. Uh, we have Angels and Demons, the follow-up to The Da Vinci Code uh, with Tom Hanks. We see the first Star Trek movie coming out, uh, about to be rebooted into a trilogy. And we also see one of the most successful comedies of the decade, The Hangover premiere. Uh, and of course, we all know The Hangover would turn into... Uh, Probably two movies too many uh, after that. 
And even though we really see sequels and franchises start to take over the box office, there are still some standalone films that did very well in 2009. One of them would be the disaster film 2012 starring John Cusack. Uh, we also have the Zack Snyder adaptation of Alan Moore's Watchmen, uh, which was met with some uh, varying reviews. Uh, we have State of Play with Russell Crowe. And of course, we have the really well done small sci-fi film by Duncan Jones, son of David Bowie, uh, the 2009 film Moon starring Sam Rockwell. Uh, that's a really fun, underappreciated film that you uh, should probably check out if you are a fan of the genre. Beyond that, we also had some uh, some comedies. This was not the biggest year for comedies, but we did have some big hits. Uh, we have the Jesse Eisenberg double land feature uh, year this year, because uh, he's in two movies called Zombieland and Adventureland. We see Zac Efron trying to move on past his high school musical days, uh, but still kind of stuck in the, uh, the teen zone, uh, and he stars with Matthew Perry in Seventeen again. We also have the Sandra Bullock um, mega hit here. The Proposal was one of the highest grossing movies of the year, which is very rare to see uh, for romantic comedies. Uh, but her and Ryan Reynolds uh, team up for The Proposal, uh, which earns massive amounts at the box office, hundreds of millions of dollars. And of course, we also have I Love You Man with Paul Rudd and Jason Segel. So all about uh, some bromance there that also did very well. Beyond comedies, we also probably had, if 2009 had one thing really kind of stick out besides the sequels and the franchises here, uh, it's also the quality of the animation. This might be, and I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration, uh, to say that it's one of the best animation years ever. Uh, we have the eventual best animated feature picture winner up. Uh, Pixar's up. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the show. Uh, but we also have Disney's Princess and the Frog. Uh, and for stop motion, if you're a fan of stop motion, you have so much to choose from. You have Fantastic Mr. Fox, the Wes Anderson film. You have Coraline, a uh, really dark and scary uh, kind of fairy tale. And you also have the, the really underrated and underappreciated Marion Max, which is an Australian stop-motion animated film all about basically uh, pen pals living across the world from each other. Uh, and it's a really sweet film uh, that many people haven't checked out. We also have The Secret of Kells. We have Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. We also have the post-apocalyptic animated film Nine. And of course, everybody's favorite sequel from this year, Elvin and the Chipmunks 2, The Squeakquel, uh, which I mention only because I can't decide if the person in charge of making the titles deserves a raise or to be immediately fired into the sun. Back, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about real estate or not. You just seem like a good dude. I thought I'd see if you wanted to grab a beer, that's all. I'm glad you called. We get home safe, Pistol. You got it, Jobin. What? Uh, nothing. Oh, what'd you say? I don't know. You call you nicknamed me Pistol, and I just called you Jobin. It means nothing. I don't. I'm drunk. I'm gonna call a cab. <laughs> All right, man. You have my number, yeah? I got you stored in my iPhone. Right. If you need me, call. Okay. Oh, man. I'm now. With some of the big releases in the box office hits out of the way, you might have noticed that a few movies that you might recognize from 2009 are not on the list. That's because we're going to save them for a little bit later for our Oscars recap. So with that in mind, it is time to get into a quick reminder on what the rules and criteria are for these rankings and then get into Oscar night itself. 
Now, if you tuned in last week, you might remember that we spent some time setting up some rules and criteria to better judge this redo, right? If it was just giving the Oscars to my favorite movies, that would be a pretty boring podcast for everybody but myself. So uh, instead, we kind of went through some rules that we're going to set up in order to judge them fairly. Before we get to those five criteria, though, uh, some quick notes. Obviously, again, it goes without saying, but I haven't seen all the movies from this year yet, but I have seen quite a few. If we look at my handy-dandy list that I mentioned last week, I've actually seen almost 100 films, so good chance that I've seen most of the, uh, the big ones. And uh, like always, I'll be honest if I haven't seen one of the movies that are brought up. Also, obviously, we won't have time to get into every single award. So while I do have some opinions on things like the best costume design and how for some reason it only seems to go uh, to movies that are about dead British royals, uh, we'll have to kind of let that one lie for now. And finally, those five criteria things that we mentioned before go as follows. The first criteria is staying power, right? If a movie is remembered 10, 20, 30 years after it's released, that should probably make it a little bit more important than maybe we considered when it was first put out. Criteria number two, subject matter. If a movie is really progressive about some of the messages that it's saying or changes the way that we think about a certain subject, that should absolutely work in its favor. Remember, every film is political. Most political of all are the films that pretend not to be. If you don't see politics, if you don't see a message in your movie, you're not looking hard enough. Number three is star power, right? We love narratives at these Oscars. We're hoping that people like Glenn Close finally gets an Oscar. She's been robbed so many times. So if somebody is really good at their job, if somebody has put in years and years of hard work into uh, this industry, they probably deserve to get recognized at some point. So maybe we can give them a little bit of boost from the star power aspect. Number four, we have critical reception popularity. For some reason, we seem to think that big movies, that comedy movies, that movies that a lot of people love and enjoy and rewatch, for some reason they don't deserve any awards recognition. I think that this is probably one of the worst things about the Oscars. Uh, if a movie is beloved by critics and audiences alike, that shouldn't be held against them. So instead, we're going to give them some recognition here. And finally, our fifth criteria goes to legacy. So if a movie has changed the genre or changed the way that we look at a certain actor or director or subject matter, that's something to take into consideration as well. The example that I always use is The Blair Witch Project, by no means the best horror movie ever made, but it is undeniable that it had one of the biggest impacts on horror films in the coming decades. So those criteria again are number one, stain power, number two, subject matter, number three, star power, number four, critical reception popularity, and number five, legacy. Now, with that out of the way, let's get into who was nominated for Best Picture. So the idea here is we are going to run down the original 2009 Best Picture list. We're going to give a little bit of background on some of the big movies. Uh, and then what we're going to be doing is kind of breaking them down and seeing if they should still fit in that top 10 spot. Maybe we will replace them. Maybe we'll keep them. We'll just have to wait and see. Response normal. How you feeling, Jake? 
Hey guys. <laughs> Welcome to your new buddy, Jake. We're going to start this list not with the biggest movie of the year, but with the biggest movie of all time, James Cameron's Avatar. Uh, while briefly surpassed by Avengers Endgame in 2019 for highest grossing film of all time, Avatar was re-released in China last March, and it allowed it to retake its spot as the most money ever brought in by a single film of all time. Taking advantage of some of the most cutting-edge technology at the time, Avatar revolutionized 3D filmmaking, spending a staggering $250 million on its budget, but earning over $3 billion at the box office. Starring Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana, and Sigourney Weaver, Avatar is all about the human colonization of the planet Pandora, uh, which is rich in an incredibly valuable mineral called unobtainium. It's called unobtainium because it is very hard to obtain right uh, also on the planet pandora we have the peaceful indigenous tribe of the navi people a 10 foot tall humanoid species uh, which are standing in between the american government and their valuable resource because humans can't survive in the atmosphere human minds are transferred to navi avatars who can roam the planet safely uh, on one of the research missions the main person that we're following our protagonist jake sully a a paraplegic former marine gets separated from his group and is brought into navi society and is soon uh, and is soon forced to choose what world he wishes to live in incredibly avatar was released 12 years ago which is the same amount of time between avatar and james cameron james cameron's previous film the 1997 best picture winning epic titanic You've probably forgotten already, but there are a staggering four sequels coming out this decade to Avatar, starting in 2022. And while chances are that you've watched the original, is anyone really excited for this franchise? I'm not trying to dump on it or anything because it was a fine movie, um, and we'll get into some of that in a little bit. But if I'm going to be honest, when I was recording this podcast, I had to look up Sam Worthington's name. I forgot it was Jake Sully. If you put like a list of the names down, I wouldn't have been able to remember his uh, characters. Um, I wasn't able to remember most of the film, even though I've seen it a handful of times, including in theater, which I remember being blown away by, but I just don't remember too much about it. Uh, so even though it is very well received, uh, it was very well received at the time, and even though it is still a technical marvel, there are some parts of the story that just have kind of faded away from our memories. And while it's fair to say that Avatar is all about the visual spectacle and the story second, uh, obviously the story still matters. At its best, I think that it's fair to say that Avatar is a slightly redundant story that we've seen before, maybe even, you know, dare I say, a little bit boring. Uh, and at its worst, it is um, kind of using some of the, uh, the most obvious white uh, savior tropes that have been used in other films like Dances with Wolves and Pocahontas and other uh, movies like that, uh, which show a outsider, a white outsider coming into usually an indigenous uh, group and just so happening to not only find his way into that group, but also do everything that they do better and eventually save them from uh, extinction. So yes, Avatar might be slightly problematic, 
Uh, it might not have the most um, maybe inventive storyline, uh, but you can't take away from it uh, just how incredible the technological achievements were. And uh, for that reason, and for that reason alone, um, and it also being one of the biggest movies of all time, uh, Avatar will stay on our best picture list. Give me a minute, Bert. We're in the middle of practice, Leanne. You can thank me later. Michael, do you remember when we first met and we went to that horrible part of town to buy you those dreadful clothes? And I was a little bit scared and you told me not to worry about it because you had my back. Do you remember that? Yes, ma'am. And if anyone tried to get to me, you would have stopped them, right? And when you and SJ were in that car wreck, what did you do to the airbag? Stopped it. You stopped it. You stopped it. Well, if there were problematic bits in Avatar, we're definitely going to have to dive into it a little bit deeper on our next film, The Blind Side. Directed by John Lee Hancock and starring Sandra Bullock, who would go on to win her first Best Actress uh, award for her role in this film. It is all about the story of uh, future professional football player Michael Orr, who was uh, homeless uh, when he was in high school and taken in by the Tui family. Now, Sandra Bullock plays the no-nonsense Leanne Tui, who fiercely protects and advocates for her upper-middle-class family living in the predominantly white suburban area of Tennessee. When Leanne sees Michael, an abnormally tall and strong teenager wandering the streets homeless, her mothering instincts kick in, and he begins to stay with the Tui family. Unfortunately, and unsurprisingly, the fact that Michael is black causes quite the stir in the elite circles the Tuis are involved in, but thanks to Leanne's fierce protection and push into the local high school football team, Michael soon finds success, eventually making his way to the NFL as a first-round draft pick and few future all-star. Now, the main issue here is the inaccuracy and the hypocrisy of this film. Michael Orr has repeatedly said he dislikes his portrayal in this film, which really leans into the quote-unquote gentle giant stereotype. Orr had played football his whole life and did not need to be taught how to play by Leanne and his high school coaches. Many critics and reviewers have even lab labeled Ower's portrayal as a borderline Uncle Tom character who is purposely shown as oafish and slow in order to make him seem less intimidating to white audiences. Beyond the inaccuracies and racial undertones, The Blind Side is also incredibly hypocritical and misleading. They portray the private Christian high school the Tuies all enroll their children and Michael into as high on values and character, but they don't acknowledge that Orr's high school coach, coach Hugh, um, called Coach Cotton in the film, was actually Hugh Freeze, who was only a few years away from making it into college football, only to be caught in a massive recruitment and academic violation state as well as soliciting escort services multiple times while using the university's funds. It didn't help that there are also many positive cameos by now disgraced university coaches, including Tommy Tuberville, who would use his fame uh, to get into the Alabama Senate, where he remains one of the major voices for overturning the 2020 election in favor of Donald Trump and hoping to push the January 6th insurrection under the carpet. The Blind Side is an over-sentimental, simplified story that takes the narrative away from its most interesting character, which is Michael Orr, and puts his success squarely on the shoulder of Leanne and the rest of the Tuies, who, frankly, it could be said, helped Orr out simply so they could get him on their local high school football team. 
Its legacy, messaging, and popularity today are firmly shifting away from the film, and while it made a lot of initial money, time will only make this nomination seem worse and worse. The Blind Side is cut from this Best Picture list, and will be replaced instead by a film that actually acknowledges the past wrongs of a country, instead of trying to make a simple narrative out of it. We are going to replace The Blind Side with Argentina's fantastic film, The Secret in Their Eyes, one of the best crime thrillers of the past 20 years. Skip the awful English remake with Nicole Kidman, and instead watch this winner of Best Foreign Language Film, which is all about the search for justice and the lengths people are willing to go in order to make the past right. We are here at... Uh, must I look... No, just look straight into the lens, bro. We are here at uh, MNU head office, Department of Alien Affairs. My name is Vikas van der Merwe, and behind me you can see other alien affairs workers. And what we do here at this department is we try to engage with the prawn on behalf of MNU and on behalf of humans. Now, to everyone's surprise, the ship didn't come to a stop over Manhattan or Washington or Chicago, but instead coasted to a halt directly over the city of Johannesburg. Up next, we have the great science fiction film District 9, directed by Neil Blomkamp. This Peter Jackson production is an excellent example of how sci-fi films are at their best when they represent actual hardships and societal issues with creativity. Set in an alternate reality, District 9 shows aliens arriving from South Africa, or I should say aliens arriving above South Africa in the early 1980s, only to be quickly confined into internment camps. Living with little means, with little support, and completely vilified from the rest of society, South Africans quickly begin to look down on these aliens as lazy, unsanitary, and unfit for regular society. This is a clear allegory to the apartheid era of South Africa, and Bloomkamp and the rest of his crew do an excellent job molding the found footage style with some really interesting and creative sci-fi creations. This film never would have made the best picture list if not for the increase in nominees, and because of it was able to reach a much larger audience. District 9 is one of the major success stories of the increased nominee list, and because of its powerful message and high critical reception and box office popularity, District 9 makes the cut and stays one of the 10 nominees. Anyway, I can see you're far more in need of responsible advice than I realized. Nobody does anything worth doing without a degree. Nobody does anything worth doing with a degree. No woman, anyway. So what I do isn't worth doing, or what Miss Stubbs does, or Mrs. Wilson, or any of us here. Because none of us would be here without a degree. You do realise that, don't you? And yes, of course, studying is hard and boring. Boring! I'm sorry? Studying is hard and boring. Teaching is hard and boring. So what you're telling me is to be bored, and then bored, and finally bored again, but this time for the rest of my life. This whole stupid country is bored. Up next on our best picture list, we have the British drama called An Education, directed by Lone Scherfig. A coming-of-age story about a young British girl named Jenny, played by the incredible Carrie Mulligan, who is a smart but naive British teen in the 1960s with her eye set on Oxford. She is soon distracted from her studies when David, a charming older man played by Peter Sarsgaard, begins to pursue her, offering to whisk her away from her cloistered home and stuffy parents to enjoy the things and places she's always dreamed of. 
But while her studies and ability to play the cello may come easily to her, Jenny soon realizes that her knowledge of how the real world works and the dangers and deceit that people can pose is something she must work on. A really well done period piece, an education is based on the memoirs of British journalist Lynn Barber and is adapted into a screenplay by high fidelity author Nick Hornsby. While this is an excellent film, featuring a great performance by one of the most underrated actresses in the game, Carrie Mulligan, who by the way fully deserves her Best Actress nomination, an education does not have the staying power or the popularity necessary to stay on this Best Picture list, and it is with my great regret that we will unfortunately have to cut it to make room for another 2009 film all about relationships and how people can project who they want someone to be and represent, lying to both each other and themselves. An education will be swapped with the rom-com 500 Days of Summer, a largely misunderstood film that chronicles the dangers of romanticizing and categorizing our relationships and how it stunts our maturity and ability to communicate with each other as human beings. Shot in a very unique, non-linear way to chronicle the failures of a relationship, 500 Days of Summer has seen consistent popularity grow over the years, and the rise to prominence of stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel will help this film reach newer generations of movie fans for years to come. My name is Lieutenant Aldo Rain, and I'm putting together a special team, and I need me eight soldiers. Eight Jewish American soldiers. Now, y'all might have heard rumors about the Armada happening soon. Well, we'll be leaving a little earlier. We're gonna be dropped into France, dressed as civilians. And once we're in enemy territory, as a bushwhacking guerrilla army, we're gonna be doing one thing and one thing only. Killing Nazis. Moving on, we have yet another film based in an alternative history with Inglorious Bastards, directed by Quentin Tarantino. This fictional story revolves around the multiple plots to assassinate Adolf Hitler and the remaining leaders of Nazi Germany. It stars Brad Pitt, Michael Fassbender, Eli Roth, Diane Kruger, and, in a role that would win him Best Supporting Actor, Christoph Waltz. The ultimate fantasy revenge film, Inglorious Bastards, doesn't portray history as it went, but maybe how many people wished it did. One of Tarantino's biggest box office hits, uh, Inglorious Bastards made numerous top 10 lists and began a string of critical and commercial successes for Tarantino that continue on to this very day. Now, gotta say something, one of my deepest, darkest movie opinion secrets that I hold very, very tight to my chest because I'm too embarrassed to say it to most people, I'm not a fan of this movie. I'm not. I've tried. I've watched it multiple times, and I just can't get into it. I'm a huge fan of things like Django Unchained, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, all the other Tarantino films, but I don't know what it is about this movie. I'm just not a fan. Now, I know that a lot of you probably are listening. All seven of you that are listening are probably thinking, what is this guy talking about? Do you think you can convince me? Can you make me open my eyes to this film? You want to give it a shot? You can reach out to me at mmmovies.ca on my website or on Twitter at mmmovies3, and maybe we can work out a way to film a special episode where we break down this film, because I do think it is one that deserves a little bit more in-depth analysis. But judging by the criteria and not just by my personal likes, Inglorious Bastards absolutely deserves a spot on this list, as it remains one of the most popular and highly regarded films of the year, and is probably most people's choice to win the best Oscar redo. So, 
Congratulations to Inglorious Bastards. You may just get to rewrite history, well, Oscar history at least, after all. She really has a problem. Some folks got a lot around them that shine for other people. I think maybe some of them was in the tunnel. And in that tunnel, maybe the only light they had was inside of them. And then, even long after they escaped that tunnel, I'll be clean up. Okay. They still be shining for everybody else. Leaving our alternate history behind, we now come to a more shocking present-day reality. Before we get into the next film, I just want to throw out a quick trigger warning for some of the things that we're going to be talking about, uh, because the, the film that we're going to be discussing next is Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire, a film directed by Lee Daniels, and this one comes with some mention of sexual assault content, so I'd like to put that out there before we start. This drama focuses on the experiences of an abused black teenager living in New York City by the name of Precious. Already pregnant with her second child due to incestual rape, Precious is abused both physically and emotionally by her mother and is afflicted by multiple health issues including obesity and HIV, and due to a poor education system, Precious is borderline illiterate. Thankfully, because of the infusion of a few good, kind people in her life, including a teacher and a social worker, Precious begins to see a possibility of a brighter future amidst one of the darkest realities one could imagine. It's actually an incredibly difficult film to watch, and can at times feel almost manipulative due to the near total lack of any happy moments save for a more optimistic ending. At times, it feels like we aren't even watching actual characters, because one has to wonder, or one has to at least hope that no one would have to live through the experiences that Precious does. But maybe that's just me trying to convince myself. The whole cast is excellent, in particular Gabby Sidibe, who makes her screen debut as Precious, and the powerhouse role by Monique as her mother, Mary Lee, will earn her a much-deserved Best Supporting Actress award. Ultimately, while Precious may not be the most rewatchable film, it is very much earning its place on the Best Picture nominees list and will stay with us in our recap. I feel like we need a little bit of levity after that last one right there. So to make that happen, we are going to turn to one of our favorite mid-podcast games and play Best Random, not an Oscar, but probably should be Moment of the Year. The name of the game is pretty straightforward. We look over the year in question and we ask ourselves, not every single thing can have an award attached to it, but sometimes you feel like there just should be. So we're going to take a look through 2009 and we are going to see if any scenes stuck out and if any deserve to be highlighted and maybe we can give them an honorary Oscar for their troubles. So looking back at 2009, two scenes stuck out to me uh, pretty quickly. One, I couldn't decide if I wanted to do something funny or something serious, so I thought, hey, why not both? Starting us off with our serious choice of best random, not an Oscar, but probably should be moment of the year. We have the most painfully accurate description that everybody has once had at a party going straight to 500 days of summer for their expectations versus reality scene. In this scene, we see our protagonist, Tom, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, have his expectations on one side of the screen play out of how his night is going to be going, uh, and then his soul-crushing reality playing out on the other. It is definitely everybody has had one of those experiences where they hype themselves up and they 
convince themselves to get out of the house and go out to a party that they were uncomfortable at, thinking that it was going to go well, only to sit in a corner and think, oh boy, did I get that wrong? So thank you to 500 Days of Summer for reminding me of that and reminding us all that sometimes life just does not live up to your expectations. Tom walked to her apartment, intoxicated by the promise of the evening. He believed that this time his expectations would align with reality. And on a lighter note, we have another award to hand out. But instead of handing out a Best Random Not an Oscar, we're going to hand out a Best Random Not a Razzie, but probably should be Razzie of the Year. If you've never heard of the Razzies before, they are like the opposite of the Oscars. They are handed out to the worst of the worst films of the year. And I think that there absolutely needs to be a category in the Razzie Awards for the worst use of a great song. Yes, that's right. Any big budget blockbuster can shell out some of those bucks to, in order to get the rights to some great songs, but they never really stop to think, should we? And this big award is going to go to 2009's superhero blockbuster and long-awaited adaptation of the Watchmen graphic novel and is going to go to the very poorly decided sex scene song Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. I mean, what do you say about Leonard Cohen, one of the greatest singer-songwriters of all time, a beautiful voice, a very powerful voice, uh, but I cannot think of a singer that I would want as playing in the background of a sex scene less than Mr. Cohen. So my apologies uh, to the late, great Leonard Cohen, but also I think Zack Snyder owes him some apologies as well. So there you go. Uh, we have our best random, not a Razzie, but probably should be Razzie moment of the year goes to the sex scene in The Watchmen. These questions that are, that are bothering you, Larry, Maybe they're like a toothache. Feel them for a while, then they go away. I don't want it to just go away. I want an answer. Sure, we all want the answer. Hashem doesn't owe us the answer, Larry. Hashem doesn't owe us anything. The obligation runs the other way. Why does he make us feel the questions? if he's not going to give us any answers. Returning to our best picture race, we have up next, A Serious Man, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Two years removed from winning Best Picture and Best Director for their work in 2007's No Country for Old Men, A Serious Man focuses on exactly what the title says. Larry Gopnik is a middle-aged Minnesotan Jew living in the 1960s, who is witnessing his professional and personal life crumble around him causing him to begin to doubt his faith. His wife wants a divorce and is cheating on him. His brother lives on his couch and is in legal trouble. And he himself is getting blackmailed by one of his students to give him a better grade. Oh, and he just found out he might be dying. Everything seems to be going against Larry in one of the darkest of the dark comedies by the directors, who do it better than anyone. Filled with great Jewish tradition and culture, a serious man often reads as a New Age parable from the Torah, while some say that Larry is the modern-day Job in a test of faith. Beautifully shot by the great cinematographer Roger Deakins, A Serious Man is easily one of the Coens' best and most underrated works. It stays in our best picture race. We're not actually going inside the spirit of adventure itself. Oh, uh, would you like to? What? <laughs> Wait up, Mr. Bunch. 
Not you. What do we do with Doug? He has lost me bird. Put him in the cone of shame. I do not like the cone of shame. Directed by Pete Docter and the amazing team at Pixar Animations, Up is one of the most beloved animated films of all time. Up follows the story of an elderly widower, Carl Fredrickson, who ties thousands of balloons to his house in hopes to float his way down to South America on the dream vacation he was never able to take with his departed wife. While in the air, Carl finds that he has some stowaways on board, complicating his plans. One of the most beautifully animated films ever made, Up somehow lived up to Pixar's incredible reputation and last effort with WALL-E, and would somehow also be topped the following year with 2010's Toy Story 3. Just the second animated film ever nominated for Best Picture, after Beauty and the Beast in 1991, Up is the best animated film in one of the finest years for animation altogether, and will hold its place in the Best Picture list as a stand-in for all the rest of the animated films. No, that's why we love athletes. Kids love athletes because they follow their dreams. Well, I can't dunk. No, but you can cook. What are you talking about? Your resume says that you minored in French culinary arts. Most students, they're working the fryer at KFC, but you bust tables at Il Picador to support yourself. And then you get out of college, and you come and you work here. How much did they first pay you to give up on your dreams? 27 grand a year. And when were you going to stop and come back and do what makes you happy? Directed by Jason Reitman, having just come off the underrated Thank You for Smoking and the Oscar-nominated Juno, Up in the Air may be the most topical and relevant movie on this list, not just for 2009, but maybe even 2021 as well. George Clooney stars as Ryan Bingham, a professional corporate downsizer who essentially fires people for a living. Set during the start of the Great Recession, you could say that business is a booming for Ryan. Due to his busy cross-country schedule, he spends a majority of his life in the airport and is rather pleased with his carefree, unattached lifestyle, even turning it into a bit of a seminar. But as he approaches middle age, Ryan begins to have second thoughts about his life choices and hopes that a recent romantic fling might just be what he needs to help him get grounded. Up in the Air spends a lot of its time showing the emotional and physical drain that corporate work can have on people who spend so much of their time grinding for a better tomorrow, only to realize that not only might that day never come, but they wouldn't even know what it looked like if it did. Our protagonists aren't really the bad guys, they are simply the cleaners. They do the firing, the restructuring, the dirty work, and they have to shoulder the weight, knowing that if they didn't, they'd be easily replaced. There isn't a timelier film on this list, and while Up in the Air may waffle a bit on exactly what it's trying to say, it absolutely deserves its stay on the Best Pictures list. But you realize every time you suit up, every time we go out, it's life or death. You roll the dice, and you deal with it. You recognize that, don't you? And finally, for our last film on the Best Picture list, we have the eventual winner of the night, The Hurt Locker. Now, this is directed by Catherine Bigelow, who will end up becoming the first female to win Best Director by the end of the night. And along with that, The Hurt Locker was also the eventual surprise winner as well, upsetting mega blockbuster and her ex-husband, James Cameron's Avatar. 
The Hurt Locker follows a bomb disposal team station in Iraq. Starring Jeremy Renner, Anthony Mackie, and Guy Pearce, The Hurt Locker is a very well-made, tense thriller that gripped audiences and critics alike. However, like some of Bigelow's other war films, such as Zero Dark Thirty, it can occasionally be frustrating to watch due to its ambiguity and purposefully downplayed moments. Jeremy Renner is incredibly good in this film, and even with the knowledge that he is going to go on to become a star in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and other films, he still feels like an everyman in that role. While it may sound like a backhanded compliment, there is a lot of skill that goes into acting that normal, and Renner nails it. Bigelow does an incredible job with the pacing and setting up of the bomb defusal scenes in particular, and you get the sense that danger could be lurking around every corner for these soldiers. Now, what this says about a story when we are more worried about a handful of fully kitted out professionally trained soldiers, as opposed to the dozens of Iraqi civilians shown killed on screen, and also with the knowledge that this conflict will take hundreds of thousands of innocent civilian lives as well, is another thing. I often find this with Bigelow's latest works, and maybe she is a victim of her own skill, uh, but her war films always do such a great job at dehumanizing the enemy that I'm not completely sure for what reason it's done. Whether it's done to show the fear from the soldier's perspective, or if it's done for carelessness, I am not totally sure, and that sometimes makes me a little bit hesitant when watching her work. The final scene of the film with Jeremy Renner in the grocery store has stuck with me for years now, and is a chilling reminder of how war can numb any feelings, leaving only one solution, the pursuit of more conflict. While I don't feel comfortable removing the Hurt Locker from the list, I do feel its position uh, of winner may not have aged as well. I'm not saying that it's not going to win today, but I'm just saying that it's given me a little bit more pause thinking about who's going to walk away with the award. If I did have to replace it, I feel a fitting film would have been Armando Iannucci's foul-mouthed darkest of satires in the loop. If you have ever watched Julia Louise Dreyfus crush it on Veep, you have Iannucci to thank, as he co-created the great BBC show The Thick of It, which was later loosely turned into In the Loop, and later the inspiration for Veep. In this film, we see a satirical look at how the invasion of Iraq occurred in the first place, and how bungling politicians, ruthless warhawks, and career fence-sitters can cause a whole nation to go into conflict just because no one really wanted to look weak. Even though it's tempting to make the switch, we will stick with the Hurt Locker for the Best Picture nominee. Perhaps 10 years down the line, we'll sing a different tune. But today, we're going to welcome the Hurt Locker as our final member of the Top 10 Best Picture nominees. Now we are going to be finishing up here in just a few moments. But before we announce the Best Picture winner, what about the acting categories? Well... 2009 saw a pretty decent handout of the statues, and most either still feel like the right pick or are pretty defensible overall. Starting with Best Supporting Actor, Christoph Waltz is going to waltz away with the award for his portrayal of Hans Landa, the high-ranking SS officer who delights in verbal torture in Inglorious Bastards and who would win in our re-ranking as well. Special shout-out goes to Peter Calipaldi for his work as Malcolm Tucker in In the Loop. Calipaldi is one of the GOAT-level actors of swearing, up there with Sam Jackson and Al Pacino themselves, and his profanity-laced tirades are enough to make Quentin Tarantino blush, and while they are definitely not safe for work, they are suggested for immediate watching if you have good enough headphones. 
Up next, we have Best Supporting Actress, which will easily stay with Monique, who won in real life as well, for her work in Precious. Uh, we could also maybe give a special shout out to fellow nominee Vera Farmiga for her excellent work in Up in the Air, but really it was Monique's trophy from beginning to end and was one of the most unsurprising awards on 2009's Oscar night. There are very few actors more likable than Jeff Bridges, and while Crazy Heart isn't the greatest, it's a pretty fairly run-of-the-mill, down-on-his-luck, tortured musician-type film, Bridges just has this certain charm and voice that carries this otherwise mediocre film. Jeff Bridges, one of the most prolific and successful actors over the past 30-40 years in Hollywood, gets his very well-earned first Academy Award for his portrayal of Bad Blake in Crazy Heart. Yes, we could give special shout-outs to Michael Stuhlberg in A Serious Man and George Clooney for what might just be his best role in Up in the Air. It's a coin flip between Bridges and Clooney, but since Clooney has won earlier in his career uh, Best Supporting Actor for his work in Syriana, we'll give it to the dude who most certainly abides. The Academy Awards made history that night when Catherine Bigelow was named the first-ever female to win Best Director. A long-standing veteran of action, war, and drama films, it's easy to see that Bigelow's best movie may have been 20 years before The Hurt Locker. I mean, you guys know I am absolutely talking about Point Break, Keanu and Swayze, Robbing Banks, and Surfing. It's pure cinema, one of the best action movies ever made, and I'm only half-joking. But either way, while Tarantino and Cameron make good cases for Best Director as well, Cameron has won already for his work in Titanic, and Tarantino will be getting a lot of love in future episodes. So for the 2009 Academy Award for Best Director, Catherine Bigelow absolutely once again collects her well-earned statue. The one race that we are going to have to really reconsider here is Best Actress, and I want to say right off the top, listen, I love Sandy Bullock, okay? I really do. But The Blind Side is not just a bad film. It is also one of the most mediocre and middle-of-the-road acting awards handed out. Bullock's Leanne Tui feels more like a caricature of a southern, upper-middle-class woman than an actual fleshed-out character. While this may have been fine in a supporting role, maybe if she took a back seat to Michael Orr having a more prominent position, it does not carry for the whole film. And listen, I hate to say it, but I easily could have pictured somebody like Julia Roberts, Renee Zellweger, or even Nicole Kidman in that role, and honestly, I don't see anything changing. Sandra Bullock will absolutely retain her Best Actress nomination, but instead of The Blind Side, will plug in uh, her role in The Proposal, one of the most successful films of the year and admittedly it's not the best rom-com that she's ever been in but Bullock and the national treasure that is Betty White saved the proposal from being truly an awful film so credit where credit is due and Sandra Bullock will definitely have her time to shine in later episodes as well so with that in mind who were the other nominees well I bet you can guess at least one that's right folks it's time to play everyone's favorite best actress game what was Meryl Streep doing. In this little game, we ask a very simple question on Oscar night. What was Meryl Streep doing? Well, tonight, she was as happy as a clam. Of course, that clam is cooked down in a white wine cream sauce, topped with sautéed shallots and garlic. For you see, Meryl Streep was nominated for her portrayal of the OG cooking host and teacher, Julia Child, in Julie and Julia. 
Even though she was constantly harassed by host Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin, Meryl Streep had made history that night by surpassing Jack Nicholson and Katharine Hepburn for the most Academy Award nominations, or, of course, as Steve Martin put it, the biggest loser in Oscars history. While she wouldn't win tonight, and sadly she won't in our redo either, her performance as Julia Child was spot on and straight up marvelous. So with Sandra Bullock in The Proposal and Meryl Streep in Julie and Julia, how do we round out the rest of this category? Well, I'm going to go way, way off the board here with our next pick for one of the most unfairly maligned films and performances of the 2000s. Our third nomination is going to go out to Megan Fox in Jennifer's Body, a horribly misunderstood horror film that has found new popularity in the post-Me Too era. In this film, Fox plays a very meta-type role. Fox and the director, Karen Kusama, understand how Fox has been portrayed in previous films and know that she is always going to be typecast as the vapid eye candy and it is unavoidable. So, instead of trying to repress this, instead of trying to uh, do whatever they can to ignore it, Fox fully leans into it, playing the cheerleader turned succubus out for revenge. While not the perfect movie, it definitely has some flaws. Jennifer's body is sorely in need of a critical reappraisal, and here at Reelin' in the years, we think Megan Fox is too. But this award will go down to two names that made the list in 2009 as well, Gabby Sidibe in Precious and Carrie Mulligan in An Education. Both are absolutely incredible, and like the Best Actor category, it honestly could come down to a coin flip, as both are so different, it feels very difficult to choose. But, we go back to the criteria, and we look at especially star power to help us out with this one. Mulligan has had multiple nominations, but remains winless. Sidibe has had bit parts in other roles, but has really kind of failed to recapture her initial precious fame. With that in mind, the 2009 Academy Award for Best Actress goes to Carrie Mulligan for her star-making turn as Jenny Maller in An Education. And finally, we are going to be moving on to our final category of the night. We are going to announce who is going to walk out of here with Best Picture. Always a tough choice. This edition of Best Picture will go to the film that initially looked like it was going to feel like a relic of 2009, but has surprisingly just gotten more relevant with age. The Reeling in the Years Redo Award for 2009 Best Picture is going to be gently taken away from The Hurt Locker and sent skyward to the George Clooney drama Up in the Air. Congratulations to this first class of a film. Tonight, most people will be welcomed home by jumping dogs and squealing kids. Their spouses will ask about their day, and tonight they'll sleep. The stars will wheel forth from their daytime hiding places. And one of those lights, slightly brighter than the rest, will be my wingtip passing over. So, there you have it, folks. 2009 marked the end of the first decade in the new millennium and saw a breath of fresh air for the Oscars by expanding the constricted Best Picture category from 5 to 10 nominations. While not the strongest year in film history, chances are you might have a favorite that may or may not have been mentioned. Want to make the case for a missing masterpiece? Disagree with one of my choices? 
then reach out to me on my website at mmmovies.ca where you can find all the latest movie reviews, op-eds and updates, and of course, movies you might have missed. Or you can reach out to me at our email at mmmovies30 at gmail.com. That again is mmmovies30 at gmail.com. You can also make sure to follow me on Twitter at mmmovies3 for all those sweet, sweet updates and occasional funny, but mostly depressing tweets. If you live in the Montreal region, you may also be able to find my weekly print column of movies you might have missed in the Vaudreuil Dorian newspaper, Your Local Journal. Find out where you can get your nearest copy, or even how to get your hands on a subscription, at yourlocaljournal.ca. Really want to join the conversation? Anyone who feels that there is a criminally underrated movie, or would like to make an argument for it being included in a future reeling in the year's Oscar re-ranking, feel free to message me for a future segment of making the case where you can join me in conversation or just ask me to review a movie that you would like to hear a little bit more about and you can tell me what you feel needs a little bit more love and respect now there's nothing left to do but to spin that wheel to find out what oscar year we will be doing next all years from 1990 to 2020 are in play except of course for 2009 and 1999 so here we go let's spin that wheel And it's going to land on... Oh, look at that, folks. Hit the rewind button all the way back 30 years to 1991 because that is where we are going next. Well, that's super exciting. Very pumped to rewind all the way back to 1991. That'll be one of the earliest years that we do in this initial podcast right here. I can't wait to break down that year with all of you guys. But before we do that, I want to hear some of your feedback about that year as well. And to do that, we are going to break it up into two challenges. Okay, so these are your first two challenges here at Reeling in the Years. Number one, what you're going to have to do is this weekend, you are going to log on to mmmovies.ca and you are going to subscribe if you haven't already. What you're also going to do is you are going to be voting on the poll question for which movie you think in 1991 deserves consideration for best picture. It's going to be open-ended. All you have to do is put down a movie from 1991 that you think deserves some consideration. And your second challenge is we all probably have a favorite movie from that year, but you are going to have to dig a little bit deeper and suggest your favorite best random, not an Oscar, but probably should be moment. That's right. You're going to look back through all the scenes and you're going to think what movie moment from 1991 deserves to be highlighted. It could be serious. It could be silly. It could be whatever you want. Uh, and if you have a good suggestion, I will give you a shout out on the next episode. So those two challenges again are you are going to tell me what you think should be best picture in 91 and also your favorite random movie moment. All right, folks. Well, that is a wrap on 2009. And I hope to see you all again in two weeks for some 1991 action. Until then, all the best, and as always, happy streaming. You can find all episodes of the Reeling in the Years podcast located on mmmovies.ca, on Google Podcasts, or on Spotify, just search for Reeling in the Years.